Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What's going on, guys? It's Ash Bennington. Welcome to the Crypto Gathering, our special week-long campaign on Real Vision, where we ask this big question. Is it game on in crypto? Are we about to enter the next bull run? And if so, how do you position for it? Yesterday, we discussed the state of the NFT market with our friend Sergio Silva, who spoke with OSF and Mando. They discussed the changes in liquidity and the impact of that. Mando explained why they swapped their vast NFT portfolio for ETH, which is rocketing this morning, I should say. The trio has also talked about utility tokens, Web3, and mainstream adoption. All right, on to today's show, where we look at the question of, is it game on through the lens of hedge fund managers? Joining me today are Chris Sullivan, co-founder and co-portfolio manager at Hyperion Decimus. Jeff Dorman, Chief Investment Officer at ARCA, and Richard Galvin, Co-Founder and CEO at Digital Asset Capital Management. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ash. Well, we got one hell of a day to do this. Lots of breaking news this morning that I just want to talk about at the top of the show here. Former CEO of crypto lender Celsius Network has been arrested. The U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York has just held a press conference on it. I believe that press conference is ongoing right now. Mashinsky has been charged with fraud and attempting to manipulate cryptocurrencies. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Commodities Futures Trading Commission, and Federal Trade Commission, that's SEC, CFTC, and FTC, have each filed separate civil lawsuits against Mashinsky and Celsius. The FTC also announced a $4.7 billion settlement with Celsius. The money will not be paid until creditors and investors have been repaid in the bankruptcy proceeding. The New York Attorney General filed charges against Mashinsky for defrauding investors in January of this year. I should say, not filed charges, filed a civil suit, I believe. It's important to note that Alex Mashinsky and Celsius have been a Real Vision sponsor in the past. Of course, Mr. Mashinsky is innocent until proven guilty. We should also say we've got a big ruling in the Ripple lawsuit uh, summary judgment here. We're just parsing through this. Literally, this is broken here uh, in the last few minutes before the show went live. Uh, mm -hmm. But it appears as that the summary judgment indicates that XRP is not a security. We're going to unpack all of that in just a minute. Guys, obviously, tremendous amount of news flow today. Hell of a day to be doing this panel. Uh, let's just go around the horn. 
I know everyone on this show has been familiar to a Real Vision audience, but for people who may be new, who may be joining us for the first time, uh, let's just go around and introduce ourselves. Tell a little bit about your background and what you do now. We'll start with you, Chris Sullivan. Sure, we'd be happy to. Um, Co-PM and co-founder of Hyperion Decimus, we run a quant-driven multi-strat, semi-OG in the space, been investors for almost a decade in the space. Um, and realistically, you know, my role is just to try and get investors to understand like what, what is a good combination of thesis, strategies, narratives, to help them de-fiat themselves. De-fiat, I like that term. <laughs> um, Jeff, over to you. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ash. And hello, everyone. Uh, Jeff Dorman, Chief Investment Officer, co-founder at ARCA. Uh, we're a full-service asset management firm dedicated to digital assets, started in 2018, uh, have multiple funds. Um, we have liquid, uh, fundamentally research-driven hedge funds. We have an NFT-specific fund. Uh, we have an early-stage venture fund. Pretty much the whole team comes from traditional asset management and, and you know, our, our Real niche is applying, you know, tried and true investment fundamental methodologies and risk management to this new, you know, rising asset class. Well said, Richard Galvin. Uh, thanks, Ash. Yeah, yeah, I'm the co-founder and CEO of DACM. We're uh, Sydney-based, but we run global institutional and family office money uh, through, through crypto. We focus on two core strategies. Uh, we run an early stage venture fund, which we launched in. Uh, in mid 2018, and a, a long-only fund, fundamentally research-driven fund that we launched in uh, early 2018. Uh, prior to starting the firm, I was a banker for 20 years, focused on the tech sector at uh, Goldman and JP Morgan. Yeah, I mean, everybody on this conversation has extensive background, not just in cryptocurrency, but in traditional finance, uh, which makes you guys kind of the ideal panel to discuss everything that's happening here this morning and this afternoon. Let's start with Alex Mashinsky. Guys, what are your thoughts on this? Good. Yeah. <laughs> old, old old news, not really worth more than 30 seconds of the show, probably. Agree with you. Well, uh, well but uh, uh, arrested today, simultaneous filings from CFTC, SEC, uh, and FTC. This is pretty big news. Uh, obviously, the news has been baked in in terms of what's happened with Celsius post-collapse, uh, but criminal prosecution, obviously innocent and too proven guilty, we should say, uh, but still kind of a big deal. What are your thoughts about the impact it's going to have on the space? It is major news flow, Jeff. Well, I think it's big news for Alex Mashinsky and his family. I don't think it affects creditors at all uh, in terms of the asset recovery. It certainly doesn't affect the markets in any uh, sense. Yeah. Um, you know, there you, you would never be able to find a single trader or investment manager or fund that is making any bets, you know, for or against the outcome of Alex Mashinsky. So, um, you know, big news in the sense that if you, you know, if you had your uh, uh, criminal or expected criminal uh, dartboard, you know, another one that just got targeted. <laughs> but I just don't think it has a, um, a real meaningful impact on the space. I mean, we all know we're moving away from the 2017 to 2021 uh, uh, incumbents who some of which didn't necessarily follow the law and sort of moving ahead towards the new wave of digital assets, which is going to include certain incumbents who did things right, plus this new wave of you know, TradFi and institutional uh, asset managers and service providers that are getting into the space. Yeah, I, I agree with Jeff completely, Ash, and <clears throat> may I, I just reintroduce that just like this news has no bearing on what we collectively do in our funds and, and the price of the assets itself, you can give a corollary to this week, Bank of America got fined $250 million for basically doing the same thing Mashinsky was doing, allegedly, 
um, and the stock went up. So, Richard Galvin, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the market's largely kind of moved on from, uh, you know, well aware of everything that went on in 2022 and just kind of sees this is cleaning up, uh, cleaning up a lot of mess that's kind of pretty much baked into the market over that sort of period. Yeah, I think those are all important points. I think definitely baked in. Uh, and as you point out, Jeff, probably no impact in terms of the process that's going on for recovery uh, for the creditors. Uh, but I will say this, just to play devil's advocate here, uh, there are a lot of folks in this world, uh, in the business community, in finance, who do not have the sophistication that the folks on this call do. Uh, they read the Wall Street Journal. They're going to see this story today. And it's going to be, in their view at least, yet another black mark for crypto uh, in terms of the, the perception uh, that people outside the space have. How do you think about that? Do you think that's a factor or not important? Yeah, I think that's important um, in the sense that it, it was important prior to FTX. I think the news that came in 2022 prior to FTX all was incrementally important. I think FTX was so big and so well-known and Sam Bankman-Fried had resonated so far beyond just you know the crypto circles. You're really not going to have a headline that's bigger than that. Right. Um, you know, post November 2022, when uh, FTX went down and, and Sam Bankman-Fried was indicted, um, pretty much every conversation since then, up until a few weeks ago, was, will crypto survive? How are you going to run uh, an asset management firm or a business in an industry that's being targeted by the SEC and the DOJ and everyone else? But post the BlackRock and Citadel news of June, every conversation has already shifted to not from will crypto survive, but who's actually going to end up making all the money here? Is it going to be the incumbents or is it going to be BlackRock and Citadel or anyone else? So I, I think, right. you know, maybe the timing of the announcement just by itself, you know, if this announcement had come six or nine months ago, probably would have carried more weight uh, with regard to what you're saying. I think at this point, though, you're not going to get a bigger fish than SBF and FTX, um, and it's just not going to have a meaningful impact on the um, sentiment, uh, which, in my opinion, has already started to change pretty meaningfully over the last three to four weeks. Yeah, very interesting, very nuanced. Guys, any further thoughts on Mr. Mashinsky? No, I agree. I, I agree with Jeff wholeheartedly. I think the you know the BlackRock news kind of brought us back from, I guess, consensus view that was kind of teetering on the abyss around U.S. regulation. So, yeah, I think this is kind of like the this is like a a, a blowback to in a time that we've kind of moved a little on from. Given the, I guess, what I'd say is a much more positive sort of trajectory we seem to be heading on post these uh, FTA, uh, ATF filings. It is also nice to see the rule of law, right? Albeit didn't protect any investors because the regulators are, have a history of never doing that properly. It is nice to see the rule of law come through. Well, you know, I guess you could say that uh, that this is something that's, you know, potentially forward looking. If you want to protect investors, you make a, a case uh, that bad actors uh, will, in fact, uh, have consequences for their actions. Okay, on to the next big story here of the day, and it really is an enormous one. I haven't had a chance to read the Ripple ruling yet, uh, but I'm seeing the tweets uh, flowing. Obviously, a summary judgment here in the Ripple case granted this morning. It appears that the interpretation is, and again, I'm, I want to be very careful about how I say this, uh, that uh, the interpretation, at least broadly speaking, is that the ruling implies that Ripple is not a security. What do you guys think about this? Without reading it word for word, um, we've got to go with the headline. I, I personally don't think it's a security. Um, I'm not representing my firm's position, but going through the code base, um, I, I think maybe actions 
based on the three-pronged Howey test should could could potentially be, be viewed as such. But as far as the underlying asset, um, I, I concur with the, the statement that's not a security. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, let's make the question a little bit more general here. Let's bring the conversation just a little bit broader to explain to people what the, the issue here is at stake and why this idea of whether or not it, Ripple is in fact a security, I should say XRP is or is not a security, is an important question. Guys, jump in. I think, I think why this case is so important, Ash, is that um, yeah, this is a case that's kind of ahead of the pack, right? So there's been a, a lot of accusations made, particularly you know recently as well, around a whole bunch of different assets and whether they're securities or not. And this is really sort of the key test case that's been you know, running on for a, for an extended period of time now. So it's kind of the first first kind of glimpse I get of you know, where we get more of a, a judgment between both sides and a judge kind of giving giving a view on whether something whether something in the crypto space that was that was that was posited by regulators to be a security, whether it is or not. Um, and so yeah, it's the first initial read on that. You know, first of probably many cases, I guess we're going to have to watch play out over the next few years. I mean, it's just another example of the sort of regulatory pen pendulum we've all kind of lived through over the last kind of five or six years, right? And all these legal processes, you know, you make a whole bunch of claims and then they get tested in court. So there's that momentum swing between the accusers and then the defenders. And we've obviously also gone through just a new wave of you know accusations being made over the last few months. And hopefully we get to sort of see the other side of that play out over the next year or so. Jeff. Well, I think, I mean, there's, there's a much bigger point here, which is there's nothing illegal about being a security. I think there's all this back and forth, especially on crypto Twitter, of whether something's a security or not, as if, if, as if all of a sudden it's illegal to be a security. There is nothing illegal <clears throat> about something being a security as long as securities laws are followed, right? right. So it doesn't but That's the core of the allegation, Jeff. Well, right, right. But, 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 but it's, really, it's really important to make sure people understand that because you read through people who maybe aren't as sophisticated as investors and they're so worried about something being a security thinking that all of a sudden that means it has no investment thesis and it's illegal or you can't own it. So just to be very clear here, every investment manager, every individual can buy and sell and trade securities or non-securities, right? You can trade non-securities like baseball cards and gold. You can trade securities like stocks and bonds. It makes absolutely no difference to the end, to the end investor. Right. What it matters to is only two people, right? Which is the issuer of a token. If you are issuing a token that is deemed a security, then you have to go through a much uh, longer process in terms of SEC registration uh, and 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 pay a lot of fees in order to register your token as a security and do the ongoing reporting that comes with it. You know, whether that be 8Ks, 10Qs, 10Ks, or some other types of filings. The other uh, group of individuals who who care if something is security is the those who uh, traffic in the securities, right? The exchanges, the brokers. Um, if you are, you need special licenses in order to trade securities. And right now in the token infrastructure world, there really isn't anything properly set up to trade security tokens. There's a few, right? right? There's a few that have been built, but they have no traction. They have no customers yet. They have no tokens on there. That's 
what matters, right? The reality is for the end everybody else, the end token user, the developer, the fund, it really doesn't matter. So if the SEC is hell-bent on calling everything a security, first and foremost, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. But if you are going to try to win that case, which in this case they lost, if you're trying to win that case and then you want to say that everything is a security, then you have to make it cheaper and easier for the issuers and the exchanges to be able to issue and trade uh, these tokens. So specifically to the Ripple case, why this is a big deal, you know, we, we mentioned we don't think the, the Mashinsky stuff is a big deal. This Ripple news is a big deal for a few reasons, right? One is the consensus has always been that Bitcoin is not a security and everything else is. Well, this now shows a pathway for something other than Bitcoin to be, Bitcoin to be labeled as not a security. Um, and two, it means that there's a little less credibility for the SEC in their hunt saying everything is a security. And it's a little bit of a win for, hey, you can't just pick on everybody just because you've largely picked on small entities that don't have enough money or lawyers to fight back. If you pick on a Coinbase or you pick on a Ripple or someone that's big enough with bigger lawyers, they're going to push back and they can win by rule of law. So from a market standpoint, what does this mean? Well, it's great for any other entities that have pending lawsuits, which is Coinbase and you know Grayscale. It's great for service providers of non-Bitcoin tokens, which is like Coinbase and Galaxy and Kraken and some others. And it's great for all the tokens that were recently delisted, like by Robinhood, for example, which is Cardano, Matic, Solana. And it's probably great for DeFi, which was the other elephant in the room of whether or not DeFi tokens were going to be deemed securities. Um, and of course, it's great for the XRP token in the sense that you look at you look at platforms like PayPal. What do they list? They only list Bitcoin and ETH and Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash, right? The four that have largely been assumed not to be securities. You look at Citadel and Virtu and Schwab's new platform, EDX. What did they right. list? They listed Bitcoin, they listed Ethereum, they listed Litecoin, they listed Bitcoin Cash. Well, now XRP might be included as the fifth token to be a non-security and just assumed by everybody to be okay to trade. Now, that doesn't mean it has greater investment uh, thesis. It doesn't mean that it changes anything with regard to what you think it may or may not be worth, but it definitely improves liquidity. It definitely improves breadth of markets, and, and that's a big win. Yeah, to, to piggyback on what Jeff was saying, agree, agree with it completely. To Ripple's credit, uh, and Richard, you were touching on this as well, like the, there wasn't the legal apparatus to comply with when, when, when the token was issued, right? They only got to that in, in the fall of 21 with the three-step process. There's only, as Jeff said, a handful of ATSs that can even trade tokenized security. So like there should also be, in addition to properly ruling, and complying, there should also be a, some sort of race period to let those that are maybe not as black and white and that are gray make the choice to comply and get ahead of it so that there's not an expensive and timely lawsuit. So if we just take a step back, be logical and, and not worry about competitive incumbency and blah, 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 and just focus on what's best for the, first off, the tech and the infrastructure side and then the investors secondary to that, it, it could go a lot smoother than it has. Richard, thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, yeah, uh, I think we're just seeing this sort of this, this swing back in momentum between you know a, a, a lot of uncertainty and a lot of accusations being made, and you know the, the the important thing now, the key thing to focus around is you know as Jeff mentioned, there's these these well resourced entities that can hire the right legal teams to take these processes to fruition. I think the next key one that clearly I think is critical for the for the industry is around Coinbase. I mean, you know the most interesting. Uh, yeah, they're extremely well capitalized entity and they work across everything to do with the everything to do with crypto from you know trading through to custody through to staking so 
you know, them going through a legal process and getting determination around their business model and, and the accusations made against it provide a lot of certainty or a lot of, I guess, a, a lot of certainty around the, the, the gamut of opportunities or the gamut of, of activities that could be conducted in crypto and how they're seen legally. Yeah, I should say, by the way, I'm looking at the chart right now for Ripple. It's up, uh, XRP, I should say. It's up about 30% uh, here on the day. Uh, right now trading at about 61 cents. If you look at this chart on a 30-day basis, I don't know if we can bring that up. Uh, there it is. Uh, you basically see it looks like a flat line uh, followed by just a moonshot vertical bar uh, upward, straight up 30% today. And I want to I want to reiterate there though, like if you believe whatever you believe the value proposition of XRP is, it didn't change because of today, right? The XRP value proposition, whether that being a, a cross bank settlement or whatever you think the future value of XRP may be, right. that doesn't change at all on this. What really changes though is simply the liquidity, right? Two three years ago, whenever it was, XRP was when, when this lawsuit first started. XRP was delisted by Coinbase. It was delisted by other places. Um, it was limited in terms of where you could trade it to a lot of offshore Asian exchanges. Um, this potentially really increases the liquidity and the willingness of um, platforms to relist or, or list for the first time XRP. So a very big win from a liquidity standpoint. And, and again, everybody differs in terms of what they think tokens are worth. Some people think it's only a trading vehicle. Some people think there's real fundamental value. Obviously, very tokens are very different, whether you're a currency um, or more of like a pass-through uh, token that that that, that uh, uh, resembles equity. Um, but in this case, I think this is a huge win in terms of the liquidity that is going to be offered for the XRP token. All right, so let's take the conversation up a little bit more broadly. Obviously, we had some two major news flow stories here on the day. Let's take the conversation a little bit broader and talk about what you guys see uh, aside from these news stories today, in terms of the general tenor of the environment, there's a lot of talk, a lot of optimism among certain quarters about this idea of it being in a spring thaw here with crypto. What do you guys think? Yeah, happy to go first here. Um, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I personally and our, our firm, we, we were calling a bottom for the market in December, right? It was so much unnatural selling that was happening in December because of FTX, because of, um, you know, window dressing at the end of the year. You know, don't forget, there was a lot of TradFi funds who owned a fair amount of crypto in some way, shape or form, and they did not want that showing up at their end of year statement. So they were, you know, Coinbase stock was getting killed. Grayscale was getting killed. It was very unnatural selling. The bottom from a pure kind of just market standpoint seemed fairly obvious in December. What didn't seem obvious was why would we go higher? Right. It's one thing to say that we're no, done going down. It's another thing to say, well, what actually is going to take you go higher? And there is basically three things that have happened um, this year that have started to bake in that upside bull case. Right. The first is the regional banking crisis in March. That was a huge, huge win for Bitcoin. Um, you look at a chart of KRE, the regional banking ETF versus Bitcoin. And it is nearly negative, you know, perfect negative one correlation is that as regional banks went down and people started to lose confidence in their banking system and the nationalization of banks um, from governments, that was a huge win for, well, maybe I should own a bearer asset like Bitcoin to protect myself so I don't have to worry all weekend of whether or not I can make payroll the next day. Um, that was huge. The second is the complete decoupling um, from a correlation standpoint with macro. Um, you know, for the last 18 months, or, or really from November 2021, when the Fed started hinting at hiking rates through the end of 2022, we were moving lockstep with macro. The correlation was off the charts. 
Um, and every piece of economic uh, data that was hot was being viewed as a negative for markets because it meant higher inflation and therefore more rate hikes. That has completely shifted this year. For um, The correlation is back down to the historical norms, um, which is to say basically very little correlation between stocks and digital assets, um, but also um, you can see the way markets in general are reacting to positive economic data. Um, the markets actually want positive economic data right now because that means no recession. They're, they're less concerned about inflation and rate hikes, and they are more concerned about whether or not we're going into a recession. So the continued strong economic data that we saw in May and June has actually been good for global markets. Um, and that's a huge, huge shift. Um, you know, one of the things we do as active investors is we have to notice when patterns shift. And that's probably the most important pattern shift that we've seen this year. Um, and then third, uh, and most specifically, is just, you know, you hear it all the time, but it's actually true right now, which is that the institutions are coming to digital assets. This BlackRock and Citadel news in June is probably the most important piece of news we've ever had in terms of institutional adoption. Um, you have BlackRock with nine trillion of assets. You've got, you know, everyone else um, that, that, that's coming along from, you know, Fidelity to Schwab to now, you know, Franklin Temple and State Street. I mean, you're talking about you know, multiple tens of trillions of dollars of asset managers that are basically behind this technology now and 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 doing it to put their investors into um, these products. And, and, and probably lost is that you also have Goldman issuing reports on tokenization. B of A put out the best 100-page report I've ever seen on the future of tokenized assets. Um, you had uh, uh, JP Morgan putting something out. So you have, that, that kind of stuff only <clears throat> happens when customers are demanding it. So, and you can see, right. um, I'll, I know everyone else wants to talk to you, so I'll, I'll try to wrap this up, but uh, you know, you can see the institutional capital coming in a couple of places, right? The first is that um, if you look at just the CME, CME open interest increased 34% immediately on the back end of the BlackRock filing. What that shows is that the CME is largely used by traditional financial firms. It's not really used by crypto natives. Crypto natives can trade on Binance or Coinbase or wherever else. It's the right. non-crypto natives that trade on the CME and a huge spike in trading and open interest on the BlackRock news. You also saw the grayscale premium or, or discount narrow quite a bit, right? And why? It's because if you have money sitting in a brokerage account, you can't immediately get it to Coinbase or someplace to buy Bitcoin or ETH, but you can immediately buy a security like grayscale. Um, you know, obviously it also because of the fact that grayscale may be able to convert to an ETF eventually, but, but, but also just the flows we're seeing in stocks like Coinbase, stocks like Marathon and Riot, the, the miners, stocks like grayscale, huge institutional flows going into the, the, the stocks um, that they can buy. Um, and, and, you know, you look at those together and, and, and that is a prelude to money eventually working its way directly back into this ecosystem via uh, hedge funds, via direct buys from family offices, et cetera. So this was real. This was not the traditional trope of, oh, the institutions are coming with no data behind it. I mean, there was real flows coming into this market on the result of, as a result of that. <clears throat> Jeff, really important comments. I should say we're running an hour today, so we all have plenty of time uh, to give the kind of depth uh, that you just gave there, Jeff. Some very important points you just made. Uh, Chris, over to you, your thoughts. Uh, if you could respond to Jeff, because I think Jeff made some great points there about the general structure of this market. Uh, what's happening with institutional adoption in terms of BlackRock, Citadel, uh, and the EDX exchange? Yeah, I, as a quant, like Jeff's 100% right in his analysis of there being literally no correlation to stocks. I would unpack and separate certain macro factors um, from stocks as being one in input to, to macro, but um, there's no correlation to interest rates, no meaningful correlation to interest rates. There's no correlation to business cycle. There's no correlation to revenues, cost, HR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a really good point for all investors to think about. 
this as an asset class because we have essentially these cyclical cycles that have been part of essentially what, what I would call macro or secular cycle one, and then a bear cycle two. And we, we probably are kicking off a, another secular bull cycle here. Um, the auto harmonics with the charts, is, as you pointed out on the tech TA um, piece, Ash, on Tuesday was pretty awesome. Um, it, it does match, but perhaps for different reasons. And I also think that the institutional side that we've all been hearing, both Jeff, Richard, myself have been hearing that since probably before we even launched the funds, because that's why we launched them you know, six years ago. Um, I, I think it's definitely picked up in, in conversations, but I want to make the point that U.S. investors specifically, their on and off ramps have been severely impaired, right? So as Jeff rightly pointed out, what we're seeing here with the stocks that have crypto correlated performance, unlike 2020 and 2021, when they greatly lagged the crypto, the price of crypto assets themselves, they're now way ahead of it. Most of those mining stocks are up three, 400%. Um, and, and now we could see that flip from a lag to a lead. And, and as Jeff again rightly pointed out, we as hedge fund managers need to recognize patterns, evolve quickly, correlations change, we change, and adapt to all the new data. Uh, so it's fascinating as a human being, as a historian, as an investor. And I want to point out that this is still not too late to convert fiat into digital assets. What we do know about fiat is that it is always a race to zero since 71 down 98% DXY. And then, by the way, Jeff, you've left this little piece out that I think is also a confirmation of bull. How many currencies globally has Bitcoin made a new high in year to date? Right? It's almost almost 10. So I think all of those factors lead into a weighting of the evidence. Um, and I'll quickly say, what's the bear case? Because I always love playing both sides. The bear case may perhaps be the most long long term bullish case because the structure and fractals of the market would would somewhat look similar to 19, where you get an 80, 100 percent rise and then a truncated double bottom where figure you retest uh, low 20s. And then there's no other trade but to be max all in, right? So if it starts running away here, I think people will get on the, the, the FOMO buy side, which uh, right now we've got a very neutral sentiment that has flipped from focusing on every call being about FTX, as I'm sure Richard and Jeff have discussed, um, to, oh my God, how do I place capital? Where What banks are you guys on that I can wire money to? So um, I, do, I do think that that collectively paints a strong case for, for the bull side. Um, intermediate term, we've washed off overbought conditions. It, it does look real pretty right here. It was chopping people up at the high end of the range, which usually is a precursor to another breakout. Yeah, and by the way, I should point out, as you pointed out to me at the beginning of the show off camera, uh, DXY below 100 uh, today, just before we went live this morning. Richard Galvin, uh, we've heard the long big picture thesis uh, from both Jeff and uh, Chris. What are your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I should carry this, this with you know we're a venture and long only investor, so you know I'm biased long. I'm biased long deliberately. That's our fund strategy. So yeah, you know, I'm a bullish guy by nature on on this disruptive technology. I think you know the points around it, the, the the correlation breaking down is something that you know we've had we've had conviction on over the last few years. We think this asset class is. You know, it, it, it's its norm is not to be correlated to most other things that happen in the world, and we think 2022 was was the abnormality, not the 
not a new new and yeah you know, so so not surprised that it's you know it's it's reverted back to where it started which is you know high uncorrelated returns basically to almost everything and you've got to understand that's in and of itself putting aside all other factors to do with it is a valuable piece in an investing framework when you can have an asset that 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 has such you know such low correlations to everything else mm. we think in terms of the market construct you know if you look for a positive that came out of 2022 as we went into 20 2023 you effectively cleaned up the investor base to those that had real conviction and those that effectively had the strongest hands to hold this asset class through through you know through the bottom of the cycle and you know that became clear I would agree with Jeff in those last three weeks of December was quite an incredible time on market you know there was just forced selling there's only a few people kind of standing in front of the way of the sellers it looked a very abnormal market you know we went you know we went we, we, we went max long into that period we didn't expect the payback to be in the first couple of weeks of January, but more than happy to take it. But that did seem like an abnormal, that did seem like the kind of key capitulation event around this around this sort of cycle. So we think the market's relatively clean at the moment in terms of you know the owners that want to own, own this asset class are here for the longer term. We haven't seen the spikes up in kind of hop money or leverage or any of those sorts of things as real people that real people that want to own this real asset. I think that what what takes us out of this journey and what you know, what gets us excited over the next few years is the asset class needs to earn a re-rating. And it earns a re-rating not just on flows of capital or FOMO or whatever it may be. It earns a re-rating on continuing to exist, continue to innovate and actually continue to attract users and have people paying fees and all those sorts of things. And I think that's one of the encouraging things when we talk to investors, you know, through the first half of this year is, you know, there's realisation that it's not going away. There are still users, you know, why fee levels are down or turnovers lower or whatever it may be is lower. It's still quantums above where it was, you know, only a few years ago. So, you know, we, we're getting that step change. It's through a cycle and it's an extremely volatile cycle, but it's a cycle that's got an upward trajectory in terms of user base and fundamentals. And at the end of the day, fundamentals demand that prices move if they continue to improve long enough. And we think we're in that kind of cycle where we're starting to attract investors back because you know, the rumours of its death are greatly exaggerated and we're starting to see activity sort of find levels and build upon bases now. Yeah, I think all three of you have just articulated the bull case uh, in the view that you guys see in a very, uh, I think, specific and clear way that talks about the bigger picture of everything that's happening right now. Uh, but let's, since we're having this conversation here in real time, uh, let's take this party right to what Bloomberg has just updated on their website in the last uh, 15 minutes or so since we've been live. Uh, the reason I was being so cagey about what I was saying earlier uh, about Ripple is I didn't want to mischaracterize it. I was looking at the, the real-time uh, flow from our friends over at BlockWorks who are analyzing the court ruling on the prong by prong on the Howey test, and it actually sounded to me very unfavorable. Meanwhile, I'm looking at the XRP token spiking in price. This is from Bloomberg, and I think this characterizes what's happening pretty well uh, to get a sense of it, and I guess I can get response from you guys. Uh, a federal judge ruled that Ripple Labs token is a security when sold to institutional investors, but not the general public, granting a partial win to the SEC in a long-awaited decision that could help determine the future of crypto regulation. U.S. Judge Annalisa Torres in New York on Thursday said that the crypto firm's sales of the XRP token to sophisticated investors met the test for an investment contract under federal securities laws. So this is uh, an interesting uh, 
well, I would say ripple in the case, wrinkle in the case, it, trying to get a sense of what this means. I know that this is all real uh, time here as we come across, uh, but it is interesting to see that this ruling appears, at least in terms of the Bloomberg characterization, to be asserting that ripple is a security when sold to institutional investors, but not, not to the general public, according to this recent lead rewritten by Bloomberg here in the last 15 minutes. Do you guys have any thoughts on this? I know, I know this is very uh, new. Ash, um, that's bass backwards, number one, because QIBs don't have, don't typically have to comply with uh, accredited and retail investor type limitations, right? So if you're a, a qualified institutional purchaser, you probably know what you're getting into. And, and then I, I don't mind the court's specification of the sale of it could be construed or considered a security, but the asset itself is not because those are two different activities, right? Um, yes. So I do like that delineation. And I think as, as Jeff pointed out, the ruling opens up um, really a, a, a lot of positive for a lot of assets that people aren't even able to separate the, the lab from the asset itself. So I, I think either way it's a positive, but as a QIP, I probably wouldn't like being told that. Anyone else have any reaction? I know this is new and breaking. Well, no, I mean, just the obvious, right? Which is that you can have something that is not a security, but the sale of it itself is a security offering, right? And I think, I mean, you go back to the Howey test, the whole point, like oranges themselves were not securities, but the, you know, sale of the, uh, uh, you know, orange juice futures was, right? So I think that that's a huge differentiation. And again, it may, when we go back to what I said about nothing being illegal about being a security, but it matters right. if you are an issuer of a security. Well, there's no more XRB tokens that are ever going to be issued. So you can say, okay, here's a fine or whatever for issuing a securities offering, but if the XRP token itself is not issued, is not viewed as a security, that's a huge win for the platforms and those who are now able to list or relist the XRP token. So there's nuance. I know the legal jargon gets boring, but um, yeah. You know, again, the big win is for, you know, if you notice when I said all the things that I think mattered uh, and, and would, should react positively to this news, it was all tokens and, and platforms that already existed, right? It's not great news necessarily for a U.S. issuer who is thinking about issuing a token because it doesn't change anything for them, right? You still may have to figure out if you're a security or not and go through a securities offering to issue new tokens. But for existing tokens already out there, your Solanas, your Maddox, your Cardanos, and your existing platforms that are already trading this stuff like your Coinbase's, it's a huge win for them. Yeah, it's really interesting, and you bring up an important point here, which is it, it almost sets up uh, this path uh, to uh, sort of legitimize if you, if you uh, so essentially pay a fine, I believe it was EOS, uh, that did that pay to fine for the way that the token was issued, uh, but then the underlying uh, the underlying token itself is not a security. I know this is complicated and nuanced, and we're parsing this in real time. But Jeff, that really is an important point uh, about a potential path forward for the space, uh, and quite well said, Richard Galvin. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I think yeah, two things there. The yeah, yeah, the the, the sale to you know, institutional investors or, or whatever terminology it is is correct in in which part of the globe you're in. So sophisticated. Uh, institutional investors, it's a pretty well well worn path. So, if you know, and we're obviously you know, coming at this you know, straight off the headlines, but if, but if you're in a world where that becomes a you know more regulated um, uh, securities like construct, that's something that you know everyone on this call is used to dealing with. And there's a 
you know, there, there's millions of lawyers literally globally that, 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 that go through security sales to institutional investors or some form of sales to institutional investors day in, day out. And that's a well-trodden path that the, the space can, that can, can, can adopt and move to, and it's largely what most people do today anyway. I think the key point to come out of that is, you know, the point Jeff made earlier and why, why you know, would, be, would be my rationale for why Ripple's obviously responded so positively to this news. It's about access to actually trade and the liquidity of Ripple. And it feels like from listening to your description there and looking at the headline, it feels like that judgment, you know, does, does do what Jeff first mentioned in terms of allowing Ripple to be traded again on, on, on exchanges and basically lifting that access. And, you know, if you have security A and security B and they're exactly the same, but security B has, you know, much better liquidity than security A, security B should trade at a, will trade at a premium. You know, that's tried and true mathematics mathematically proven, right? And so today we're basically seeing, you know, with this judgment, and it looks like, you know, that is the case that, you know, access to access to XRP is going to be better today than it was yesterday um, and liquidity should increase. And so all else being equal, you know, you see a price reaction. Yeah, I should say we've got a couple hundred people watching us live on YouTube right now. Put down your questions in the chat. We'll ask the best ones. Remember, Real Vision members take priority. If you're not a Real Vision member yet, I've got great news for you. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto to sign up. It's free and will remain so. Remember, the crypto gathering campaign is taking place all week. We've got more exciting panels to come. So please sign up to stay up to date. Uh, and we're going to be asking your questions uh, later in the show. You know, uh, Jeff, you mentioned earlier there the uh, BlackRock response. And I, I thought what was really interesting about the BlackRock uh, ETF filing uh, was the comments that uh, that I think uh, it Larry Fink gave on Fox Business with Charlie Gasparino, uh, where he essentially made the case for Bitcoin, I thought, uh, in a framework that sounded very familiar and incredibly appealing to Bitcoiners, this idea of Larry Fink, uh, you know, this titan of traditional finance going on a mainstream business show and talking about Bitcoin as an international asset, as an electronic form of gold. I thought that was an incredibly interesting position for him to take. We've heard lots of, uh, you know, CEOs uh, in the asset management space, in the banking space, talk about asset tokenization uh, in the dollarized terms. But this idea of thinking of Bitcoin as an asset, as a store value off the grid, as an alternative to the U.S. dollar coming from Mr. Fink, I thought was quite compelling. Yeah, and, and you know, I think... First of all, anybody who has been in finance, um, especially traditional finance, or has been an investor has a tremendous amount of respect for Larry Fink and for BlackRock. So obviously when he's going to speak, you want to listen. Um, if you actually listen to the whole thing he said though, it, you know, it's worth a listen, I guess, because of who it was, but honestly, it wasn't very insightful. He, he fumbled between the term crypto and Bitcoin a few times, um, often conflated tokenized assets versus Bitcoin and more equity and utility-like assets. Um, you know, and, and quite frankly, that's probably to be expected, right? He's the CEO of a hundred billion dollar company, which oversees nine trillion in assets. I wouldn't expect him to be, you know, the the world's most foremost expert on all things blockchain. Um, and that's why I thought what was more interesting than that was the hundred page report from Bank of America, the thirty page report from Citi, all these other uh, research uh, reports coming out of the big bulge brackets, where it actually did a much better job of differentiating between Bitcoin and uh, you know, Ethereum and uh, uh, RWAs and uh, real world assets, you know, tokenized real world assets as well as DeFi and things like that. So I think, yes, Larry Fink 
it's himself, that's a huge win for Bitcoin and for crypto in general because it was him. But I also think underneath the surface, there was a lot more going on. And, and, and specific to Bitcoin, which I think really was what Larry Fink's focus was meant to be on, because that's specifically the yep. ETF that they're filing is a Bitcoin ETF. You know, you have to go back to like, I mean, I, I put in one of my recent articles that I wrote uh, um, talking about, like, go back to some of the things that people said about Bitcoin back in like 2019, for example. Like, I remember um, and I wrote these specifically, it's like, this is what Edward Jones investment strategist said, that we don't like the specifics of Bitcoin. And we really think the price is moving around purely on speculation. Uh, when you think about Bitcoin, you're looking to buy something that you hope to sell for more. We would not advise investing in it. Um, you know, the same, the, literally a week later, there was the CIO of Allianz who said the same thing. As an institutional investor, you should not, you could not actually explain a position in Bitcoin. Uh, the valuation is not possible. They have no income. Uh, it's not an investment. Um, and then immediately after, it was, uh, um, I forget who wrote, but another one was like, the value of crypto is in the eye of the beholder. It make, it's unsuitable for investing. So the, the biggest takeaway was not necessarily his words. It's just that in just four years, we went from this being an untouchable asset in the minds of institutional investors and, and, and the big asset managers to all of a sudden, everyone's trying to figure out who can be first or at least not last when it comes to um, uh, uh, offering these products. And I think that's probably the biggest thing here that if you are an asset manager in any way, shape or form right now, you have a decision to make. Either you find a way to offer these products to your clients because they want it, or you start sending them to someone else who is. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Jeff, but also let me, let me add, there's a big differential between Larry Fink's reaction and why he's react, reacting, right? It's first off that nine trillion isn't his money. It's it's pension fund, retirement account, mostly 401k money, right? So totally different than Bill Miller saying, I have XYZ amount of, of Bitcoin since you know the last five, five plus years, right? So that that's a very different commitment as an investor and as a human being. So smart investors like Bill Miller who invest their money alongside their clients, like the three of us on this call do as well, make a move early, take the risk and understand it. This is a reaction because, but still positive, right? A reaction because he's getting so much demand from his clients that he will lose business if he doesn't create product to sell to them. Like that is why all of these listings have occurred for no other reason, right? It's not like they want to have, you know, the G7 go away or G20 go away. It's only client demand that's driving that, which is fantastic. Um, secondarily, like. What, what I like is it'll offset some of the uh, negative convexity and adverse selection that the futures ETFs have. So you have all of these kind of really retail destructive constructed uh, ETFs, ETNs, commodity ETNs, VIX ETNs are a good corollary or comparison that are, are just not healthy. You pull a bit, oh, you look at that chart, you look at any chart of the so-called exchange traded products that got, have futures in it, they cost 15 to 20% just to own the thing. Like that, that's not a safe, productive vehicle for retail investors. So this spot ETF, in my opinion, if constructed well, will be. And then as Richard well knows, the US is the only one without ETPs and ETFs. Like it's all over Europe and Canada and, and Asia. So I, you know, I don't think it's going to be materially impactful uh, for any other reason than narrative. Like yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, I, I think that's a key point that the yeah we we look at the the BlackRock filing and subsequent filings as more of a more of a regulatory signal as opposed to a you know a, a game changer in terms of flows. So I think that the, the marginal benefit in terms of flows from a, you know a Bitcoin ETF in the US is obviously much smaller now than it was back in 
2017 when uh, Winklevoss twins had their sort of first run at it. You know, access to Bitcoin, access to crypto has come ahead in leaps and bounds. Now it's still, you know, it's it's still a step forward. It's still, you know, it brings a it brings a, you know, an easy way to an easy way to trade an asset within a you know, construct of your you know, brokerage accounts and that sort of stuff to the world's biggest market. But I think the incremental benefit of that is you know, less than it used to be. You know, it would have been you know, three or four years ago. And from a global perspective, it's very US centric. I think for us, the, the bigger reaction is it's the signal of, well, you know, the regulatory, the, the regulatory scorched earth thesis is probably a little overblown. It's not so much around killing the asset class as about as opposed to determining who are the who are the actors that are effectively controlling or trading or or, or, or putting products around it and i think for us you know an interesting data point that we sort of saw coming into the end of last year and it i think it was literally just a week after the collapse of ftx was a was an article david solomon the ceo of goldman wrote in the wall street journal where he sort of did a you know, which is an interesting time to put it put it out in the press back then when it was obviously you know calamity for the industry around the FTX collapse and the like, we actually put forward that the, you know, the, they still believed in the technology and the, and the benefits it provided and the innovation that was possible there. Their, big, their, their, their push was, but it just needed to be in the hands of, you know, traditional regulated institutions like themselves. And that's kind of the roadmap, I guess, we've seen particularly in the US play out since he sort of put that article in. We have seen a swing towards <coughs> those regulated um, I guess uh, institutions that are, are large have that relationship with regulators going over decades, have that sort of back and forth with regulators that I guess the regulators sort of know and trust, starting to take a bigger, uh, starting to take a bigger foot forward into the space. And you know, it's interesting, it's sort of kind of all come from the collapse of FTX, which you know in a in a in a you know a few years ago or in another in a, in, a, in another dimension could have basically blown up all that interest in this interest in the in the technology but it hasn't right it's basically just changed the field of players that are that are that are looking to take the lead in it yeah well when have large financial institutions ever voluntarily interrupted themselves <laughs> well look and yeah growth's hard growth's hard you know we've all worked in financial institutions before there's not a lot of areas for financial institutions to find growth you know they're it's generally right. kind of you know sort of, sort of sort of low growth grind compressed fees, all those sorts of things, right? And it's just been a grind for decades. So new new potential kind of asset classes, new markets, uh, yeah. a few and far between in the financial services industry. So it's no surprise that, you know, big institutions want to get involved and, and see how they can sort of, you know, extend their services into it. You've seen it plenty of times before, though. I mean, like, you know, don't go back seven years ago when Betterment and Wealthfront started the robo-advising yeah. Um, you know, the, the initial, if you go back to the initial uh, headlines there, it was, you know, financial advisors are dead because robo investing is going to take over. And instead, three years later, what happened is every big financial advisor from, you know, Morgan Stanley to Merrill to, um, you know, you name it, they just started to create their own robo advising platforms that, you know, we are still going to offer you our financial advisory service, but here's also a piece of it, which is now robo investing on behalf of you, right? So it's it's yeah. rare that new technologies completely displace the financial institutions. They do disrupt, but they don't displace. The big firms just find a way to get their share of the pie. And that's what we're seeing right now. And I would actually push back a little bit on, on, on what Richard and Chris said in, in terms of, I actually do think this BlackRock ETF, if it gets approved, will have a meaningful effect on flows for the for the sole reason that investors and, and people in general are, are just inherently lazy. When you can When you can do something within the ecosystem that you're already doing, it's just easier. Right. Like, you know, for example, 
I was never a huge gamer. I would never just like seek out games. But once I got an iPhone and the games were right there, it was easy. And Angry Birds ended up on my phone. Um, similarly, you go back and look at like, uh, uh, you know, internet browsers, right? The, the initial ones like Netscape and Mozilla and Firefox. Well, who's winning it now? It's Google with Chrome and Safari from Apple because you're already in those ecosystems. There's right. a ton of investors out there that are already in the brokerage and bank system, which includes obviously a lot of BlackRock products. It's just easier. So even though Chris and, and, and Richard both said, and it's true, that it's not hard to get access to Bitcoin right now across the globe, it's still an extra step or two, right? It's still an extra workflow to have to open up a Coinbase account or open up a Binance account uh, or to have a self-hosted wallet. Like that's just, you know, for the, for the, 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 for the lazier or just, you know, uh, maybe the better word is just uh, those who prefer an easy workflow, uh, it does matter. It is going to be a lot easier for traditional, I mean, take take our fund for example. Like we trade uh, uh, across crypto native platforms like your Binance's and Coinbase's. We trade on the CME. We trade on brokerage accounts. Like we do it all. It's still torture moving money back and forth. There's still no great easy way to do everything in one place. Yeah. Uh, as that democratization happens, as you start to be <laughs> able to do everything in one place, your commodities, your stocks, your bonds, your crypto. I mean, that's a huge deal, and that does totally. change workflows. Totally agree. And the UI UX in the space right now is terrible uh, for traditional users. Uh, and, and by the way, also not just ease of use, but also to your point, Jeff, uh, the trust factor. I think there are a lot of people who are interested in these assets, but are very skeptical, hesitant, afraid, whatever word you want to choose uh, to go in and set up a self-hosted wallet. I think it, it's just an additional barrier to entry. You know, it's fascinating. And I love having conversations like this where you guys are all broadly bullish, but slightly different shades of view uh, in terms of this perspective on the space. And I think it's it, it makes for an incredible conversation. I wanted to bring in some of our uh, questions coming in from YouTube. Uh, the first one comes to us from JP Stanley on YouTube. Uh, this is a question for Chris. Uh, but I'm going to ask it of all of you. If you could only have one, Solana or Polygon? Very specific question, obviously. There's no one ring to rule them all. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll do bull Chris, bear. Can you get that on a T-shirt? Yes. <laughs> Stand by. I'll send it send it around to everybody. Um, there's got to be a Lord of the Rings one with it already. But um, I, I, you know, there are there are just pros and cons to each. I own both. Full disclosure. Fund owns both, market makes both, stakes both. So full disclosure uh, there. Um, I was hypercritical of the hype cycle of Solana. I didn't like some of the VC pump, B-dump marketing crap that was going on. And I also didn't like the consensus mechanism, which is called proof of history. Um, that being said, what I can say of the dev team that the GitHub updates and them holding was super alpha and it is what people who can survive the space and evolve despite maybe making previous mistakes um have done and then i i, I believe that their recent hackathon had over 10,000 7,000 some insane amount of hackers join um so i think that those are monster positive coming out of a you know a 242 price high i think it was a price high somewhere in that range down to uh you know down 95% ish so I think Solana has has had survivorship alpha, essentially, and has improved and done good deals, done good things with the chain. Um, the inflation rate has narrowed. So the, uh, again, long both. Um, I haven't digested today's Matic to Paul move yet, so I, I'll, I'll reserve comments on that. But there are just pros and cons, and those are different assets. 
and different use cases and different theses to own them. They're both L1s and that's really all they have in common, in my opinion, and, and, and the proof of stake side. Um, here, to basically equal weight in, in, in my eyes. Jeff, Richard, any thoughts on Polygon versus uh, versus Solana? Yeah, we've been a we've been a long term holder of Solana since kind of the you know, sub dollar level uh, since back in uh, 2000 and 2020. So, uh, and that remains a core part um, of our long only portfolio. We think it's you know, it's pretty unique tech. We think it's um, you know, its journey over the last sort of year or two is kind of a microcosm of crypto in general, right? Like the and you know we think the the room of, of its death are greatly exaggerated as well. And when you look at activity and, and, and you know, people still building on that chain and we've been active in the, on the VC side as well, uh, backing a number of projects there as well. We think it's, you know, we think it's one of the sort of core assets that provides really differentiated kind of user experience and capabilities to build on that are really unique for crypto. And so we think it's got a you know, long-term future in the space. Jeff, you want to weigh it in there? <laughs> well, I, I'm very curious what investment mandate this, this, question comes from that only allows you to own one um, but uh, we, we you know full disclosure Arca does own both right now although Solana is more of a long-term thesis whereas uh, Matic is more of a short-term trade just around some of the, the technicals and, and oversold conditions um, but I guess the better way to think about it is in, in general when you do thematic investing which is what we do you try to figure out first, what is the theme? What is the investment thesis? And then you try to figure out the best way to express that, right? So for instance, over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of themes, right? First was just Bitcoin and blockchain. Then it was stable coins. Then it was DeFi. Then it was NFTs. You could say AI uh, and real world assets are in there thematically now as well. Um, and you can obviously go deeper on all those as well. Like within DeFi, there's plenty of subcategories as well. So thematic, and, and within those themes, you generally want to own the number one leader, in those categories. And then you probably want to own one or two of the challengers because if you were right on the thesis, ch chances are you're going to get more bang for your buck on the second or third or fifth place who gains market share than you will on number one. For example, like both McDonald's and Burger King succeeded. Um, and even though McDonald's was a clear number one over Burger King, at certain parts in the investment cycle, Burger King would have been a better investment because they gained market share on McDonald's over time, right? So, um, or Pepsi, Coke, same kind of thing. So, if you're thinking about layer ones, Ethereum is clearly the number one right now. It's 235 billion in market cap. It does somewhere around 65 to 70% of all of the transactions of blockchain. Well, Solana and Matic are both at about 7 billion to 7 to 9 billion right now. So your question is, if you believe there is a future where layer one blockchains have a lot of economic activity happening on them, do you believe that somebody is going to eat into Ethereum's market share or said another way, you know, should they be less than, you know, less than 5% of the market cap? Um, I think Solana is a pretty safe bet to certainly gain market share versus Ethereum over time because they are, you know, number two in just about every category right now from, from DeFi to NFTs, um, uh, maybe not in stable coins. I think that's probably Tron. But, um, you know, it, it, to me, that's just a safe bet on convergence, that if you're right on the overall theme, that layer one blockchains are going to grow and continue to be um, uh, a very big part of financial and economic growth, you want to own Ethereum and you want to own, you know, probably both Solana and Matic uh, in terms of that uh, convergence. Richard, any thoughts? Yeah, I think on there's partly, yeah, they're partly competing over a pie of smart contract um, uh, compute capacity and demand, but also something like Solana has the ability to expand that as well, right? So we don't have the thesis around, 
you know, we're buying Matic or Solana or Avalanche or whatever it may be because they're an ETH killer. And, you know, we, 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 contest, the, we contest that thesis. We actually think through the something like Solana and the, the differentiation it's got over Ethereum can actually expand the whole space as opposed to fighting over just the one sort of market. Now, of course, there will be some competition where they cross over, but we, you know, we take it, we take the same sort of view to Jeff in terms of owning a, you know, a, a number of players across the uh, uh, across the layer one sort of space because we think that they can operate and sort of find different use cases and specialise in different use cases and help expand the overall, uh, I, I guess, user base and the overall capability of blockchain technology together as opposed to just fighting over the one sort of thing. Yeah, it, what, what's not really occurred on those two assets, which I think they both can learn from the path uh, on, on EVM and Ethereum, is L2s are 80, 90% focused on, uh, on Ethereum now. Well, what if 10% what if of that shifts to the rest of the L1s? Because Solana is actually outperforming most of, of the basket of L1s year to, year to date, probably because it got so extreme on the downside. Mm. Uh, but I think like looking at it from a very narrow pathway is is not going to yield the best result for any investor because you know you've got no comparison in terms of the quality of the asset between Matic Solana versus Ethereum because Ethereum 100% issued right it went through its proof of stake move in the middle of a giant bear market and has proven itself to be uh, I hate using this term too many times but ultra sound money it's got a real yield of near seven and there's no asset on the planet that has that. So it is special and nothing can really touch specialness, just like Bitcoin in, in that same manner, just for different reasons. So it, the ability to earn market share, developer eyes, et cetera, is there for smaller assets that, that aren't going to maybe get there as ultrasound money uh, in the next you know, two to three years. Well, nothing can touch the specialness of this panel. This has been an incredible conversation. Uh, but I want to end on one final question because this is kind of a generalization of the prior question. And I really want to get this from each of you. Uh, the question comes to us from Paul from the Real Vision website. Put on your retail investor caps and tell us how you would position yourselves right now. Richard Galvin, let's start with you. Yeah, look, I think the um, uh, yeah, crypto is a, a cyclical asset and it's a volatile asset. and you know, I think one of the things that um, I've done through both investing my own money and then managing our funds as well is to try and buy assets in the space that are real that can live through that cycle. Um, you, know, you don't want to get the you don't want to get the investment decision right of you know I think blockchain technology is an incredible investment opportunity, but then end, end up owning the two or three assets that don't make it through a cycle, and you might have been right in ten years' time, but you didn't make it through because. The, the projects you owned or the assets you owned kind of petered out before they kind of came to fruition and the space continued to grow. So, yeah, we spend all our time trying to buy real assets or real real projects that can deliver sort of longer-term user growth and fee growth or whatever it may be that they're, they're looking to drive and hold those. And they're the sort of assets you can hold through a cycle. And you need to be conscious that you're going to get cyclical price outcomes in crypto. And so you need to own things that are real, that are tangible, that you can hold conviction through through the dark days like through 2022 and then hopefully benefit from as they start to sort of grow and sort of deliver on their promises you know, as the cycle starts to turn. Chris Sullivan, over to you. Um, I'm perhaps not as rosy as Richard. Um, I would ask yourself one primary question. Is my goal of investing to have more fiat? And if so, 
to develop a trading plan and an investment thesis around that. And if it is not that, then it is back to how wealth is actually built. The wealthiest people on the planet, and the strategy will work you know, in, for perpetuity, is whoever gets fiat into assets fastest wins, right? That is not an arguable thing. So to me, I, I think it's more about how you want to invest in the space. Are you going to take a trader YOLO as, at, you know, assessment of it, or are you going to, to diversify your asset base and have it be a meaningful part of it um, as you're converting fiat to real estate or stocks and bonds or precious metals and commodities? If you're going to add crypto to that, then the thesis should be more in line with what Richard said on quality assets. And, and I definitely know Jeff and his team are one of the best on the planet at that because there are incredibly high quality assets that already exist that have infrastructure that can replace or augment uh, both government and Wall Street and can solve real world problems for very, very, very little cost. So I, I take that view versus seeking more fiat. Jeff Dorman, same question to you. If you put on your retail investor hat, what's your allocation look like? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think first and foremost, it's really important to separate your retail investing versus your retail trading, right? Trading is a lot of fun. Um, you learn a lot from trading. There's very few people who get rich trading. You get rich investing and investing for a long period of time. And, and to, to Chris's point, you know, you want to have as much of your assets invested as possible at all times, right? Whether that be equities or, or crypto or something else. So even if you like to trade, separate your piece of money that you're trading for fun versus the the, the, the investing. From the investing side, um, it, it's, it's really simple, right? I mean, have a thesis. Have a thesis on what part of this industry you think is actually going to win and diversify your bets within those theses, right? As I said, like, if you believe in layer ones, own one or two of them. If you believe in DeFi, own one or two of them. If you believe in um, you know, Web3 <laughs> or NFTs, et cetera. I mean, spread your bets around your long-term theses and for the most part, just hold them. Um, and then on the trading side, get smarter, get better, whip things around, try to, you know, learn a little bit about technical trading, learn a little bit about which, you know, news and macro factors affect markets. Learn from the trading, but don't expect to get rich on the trading. You get rich by finding your themes and your good tokens and the ones that are still going to be around in five or 10 years. And just, you know, one thing, piece of advice, don't ever say it's already up, I'm not going to buy. You know, <laughs> it takes something, something that is down, say 90%, right? If it goes up 100%, it's still down 80%, right? If you start at 100 and it's down 90% to 10 and it goes from 10 to 20, you didn't miss it. It's still down 80% from where it was, right? So definitely don't, don't prevent the real long-term 300%, 1,000% winners because you got caught thinking you missed a trade. That's a really good point because eventually we probably won't be counting in fiat or we'll be counting in different fiat than we're counting in now. Uh, but I, I do want to augment a little of my answer, Ash, because I think it, despite the UI, US, UX difficulty, every retail investor should commit to Ledger and MetaMask and commit to learning what it's like to be your own bank. The, the freedom that this space offers is to be a sovereign. And unless you learn how to do that, you're not even embracing what the, the wealth building or, or diversification attributes could even provide you. So I, I think... I'd maybe change my answer to learn how to benefit yourself with the technology of the space first, and then worry about what you're investing in second. Yeah, really important distinction, self-sovereignty, a different point from the upside potential <laughs> of the underlying asset valuations themselves. Guys, this has been a spectacular conversation to have three hedge fund managers here on the same panel to have this talk. 
really incredible. And thank you both. Uh, thank you all, I should say, for helping parse through uh, what was happening with Ripple in real time. Just an incredible conversation. I wish we had three hours for this, but there is a solution. We're going to have to have you all back one-on-one -on -one to have this conversation in more depth with each one of you. Uh, but thank you so much. Really a great conversation. Thanks for having me, Ash. All right, thanks, Ash. And thank you, Richard and Chris. Thanks, gents. Thanks, guys. That's it for now, but there's more to come. Go to realvision.com forward slash crypto gathering for all sessions. The conversation continues on Twitter spaces at 5 p.m. Eastern time today with ARCA CEO, Rain Steinberg. Tomorrow is the final day of our campaign. Raul will close it out with OSF. You don't want to miss that one. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, and 5 p.m. London time tomorrow. Thanks for watching, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.